Hey everybody, before this episode begins, just want to remind you of two things. The first one is that this episode of Mages and Murder Dads was recorded before the final cut came out, Disco Elysium the final cut, which means that we are talking about a version of the game that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, so this is a really interesting kind of historical document. So for example, if you play this game now and you feel that we come to some different conclusions or ideas or whatever than is in the game currently, well, that's because this was a slightly different version of the game at the end of the season of Mages and Murder Dads. We're going to have a whole episode dedicated to you know us kind of playing it again and talking about it. So don't you worry Stay along with us on the trip, and uh, I think it's going to be worth your while. The second thing I want to say here really quickly is that in this episode, just like last episode, we continue to talk about Clasia's story, uh, which deals with sexual assault, and we talk about it a little bit more explicitly uh, in this episode. So just wanted to give you those two things. Thanks so much for listening, and uh, I'll let you get right to the show. Welcome back to Mages and Murder Dads. I'm Cameron. And I'm Danny. And uh, we're playing Disco Elysium. This is episode 68. It's our fourth episode on Disco Elysium. Uh, just giving you a little heads up here at the top. If you like what you're about to hear in the future, if you like it, then you can go to patreon.com slash range touch in order to support the show. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about uh, conversations. Now, in the last episode... In the last episode, we spent an hour and 40 minutes talking <laughs> about two conversations. I was about to say that, that I realized afterward, because, you know, we were, we were getting a little bit, not time panicked, but we, you know, once we're getting near two hours, we start, you know, trying to wrap it up a little bit. And there are a few times in that episode, we were like, oh, I'm looking at the time. I don't know if we're going to be able to get into it. And after that was done... I sat down and I was like, oh, yeah, we only really got through two conversations. We didn't get through very much. Do you know what's uh, happened, Cameron? Uh, we are real-time, one-to-one, just replicating what happens when you play the game. What's happened is there was a time when Mages and Murder Dads was a tight 55. Mm-hmm. Truly. Just like, mm, it was scientific. We had it. We could dip three hours of content into, like, the acid you know, etch bath and mm -hmm. pull it up. And we just have a beautifully delineated 55. And, uh, you know, after uh, Torment, colon, Tides of Numenera, mm -hmm. you have, uh, you've like, you know, stumbled into many other different uh, projects. Mm -hmm. And these projects tend to produce five hour long podcast <laughs> episodes. And you, you have lost in you the will to impose the type 55. Well, I've not lost the will. I just feel like we need the time. I feel like this is just like pure uh, like uh, justification and like log logicification where I'm like, well, but you need the time. You need the time. How else well, will we do it? Well, I will say this, right? We did. There's never been a moment in Mages and Murdered Ads up until now where we have spent an hour and 40 minutes, basically, <laughs> you know, basically over half an hour. On a single NPC's conversation story beat. That has not happened, right? Like, maybe Ravel in Planescape Torment. We probably talked about that for 20 minutes or so, you think? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Probably. But, and this is, this was what gets to the question that I posed and really, like, added this entire, like, stumbling block in the middle of the episode when I talked about where does the game reside and is there some fundamental difference between the way this game operates and the other game operates. I do think that one, maybe the, maybe the question isn't formulated right, you know, you know, correctly, mm -hmm. accurately, but the fact that there is this fundamental difference in the way that we are approaching the podcast and the fact that we're, like, allotting, you know, a buck 45 
for the episodes when the when the other ones were shorter it points to something it points to the way it's a very different way that we're engaging with the game yeah i feel like that if we you know here here's an alternate universe right mm-hmm. here's an alternate universe in which every other episode of mages and murder dads is nearly 2 hours long mm-hmm. and that alternate universe is one in which we are both huge combat number nerds mm. you know what i mean where where we're like oh but you know, I was doing uh, uh, the you know, the math on Celestial Fury, right, and comparing it to a plus two bastard sword. Mm-hmm. And but and here's when it procs, and you know, there's there's a world, right, where we could we could be heavily invested, theoretically, um, in in the things that would uh, balloon an episode up. Mm-hmm. I think it's possible. So it's really just a it's a the difference here is that. Our where we get our nerddom, where where our nerddom resides, mm-hmm. is with these story beats and the conversations and the, and like the emotional valence of, of the conversations, and that's and, why. Mm-hmm. Well, additionally, yes, I think so, and additionally, that um, like who, what, na- tell me an NPC in any of these other games that has emotional valences. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Like, even if we're not looking for it, you're right, 100% Nuber. <laughs> um, there's a Nuber character in uh, Fallout 3. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like a little kid in little lamplight, and I forgot to mention it on the episode that Michael and I recorded, and it's going to kill me forever. Um, but Nuber lives on, I just want to say that. Mm-hmm. But, but, no, but you, you know, there's some of that, too, in, in the sense that, like, the game is providing a platform for thinking about these issues where just these other games in a broad sense do right like i think there's there a lot of cool stuff going on and like big capital p plot in baldur's gate but those things are not really coming out in like shades of gray deeply complicated conversations they also aren't built on each other Every, like these big these things the institutions in baldur's gate are floating they're unattached to other things there's mm-hmm. kind of like there here's a structure over here and it does have like a particular architecture, but it do, it's not its foundation isn't attached to the same surface that the foundations of the other ideas are, mm-hmm. right? But well, shall we shall we catch the the viewer listener up on like where we are in this? Moment? Yeah, yeah. Give us that old plot summary. Where I mean, where okay. are we at so far? It'll oh. be two words additional to the last time. Okay, well, I, I've obviously I've memorized the number of words last time used, so I will just do some mental mm-hmm. math. Okay, those are the two. Okay, we wake up. We are a cop with amnesia and a and a bad drug slash drinking problem. Uh, we are we realize we are in a town called Martinet in the city of Revachol um, with our temporary partner Kim Kitsuragi. We are here to solve a murder, despite the fact that we've lost our memory. Um, the murder victim was hanging behind a hotel called the Whirling in Rags after, uh, you know, extracting him from, from the position and performing an autopsy. Uh, the two of us come to different conclusions. Uh, Danny, me, mm-hmm. uh, discovers a bullet wound in the victim's mouth, um, whereas Cameron discovers uh you know is is a little skeptical that the cause of death was in fact hanging and isn't isn't willing to commit but didn't discover the bullet wound 
Mm-hmm. We discovered it, a bunch of footprints. Yes, Cameron discovers a bunch of footprints, and like something doesn't add up about the way in which this person, who you know appears to have high tech armor, was carried out there. We conduct a lot of interviews. We talk to the um, the union boss. Um, we talk to uh, union boss Claire uh, Everett. Everett, right? Sure. Uh, we talk to Joyce Messier, who is the negotiator sent by the Wild Pines uh, Corporation to um, to kind of figure out or to kind of solve this uh, conflict between the union workers and the corporation. There's a big strike going on. The union's demanding, you know, every member, every worker, a member of the board. We find out that there is a, uh, that basically a bunch of mercenaries were sent down here uh, as muscle. One of these mercenaries was accused of rape. One of these, and that mercenary, we are told, uh, became a victim of like vigilante justice on behalf of a particular group of dock workers who were kind of the enforcers of the union. At the very end of the last episode, we talk about this big conversation that we have with the Hardy Boys, the aforementioned um, union enforcers. And Titus Hardy, kind of the, the titular leader of the Hardy Boys, um eventually we are able to kind of like provoke enough emotion with him that he dismisses the um the union lawyer who is present and he makes an admission that uh he makes several admissions he talks about Klasia, a woman staying at the at the hotel that she was the uh victim and we were just on the cusp of kind of talking about maybe some divergent experiences we were having in that conversation and kind of the conclusion of the conversation. Where, where, what do you want to add here? I think that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this so conversation is complicated. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, com- the, con- the conversation between the three different uh, entities, ourselves and, and the, uh, and Titus and Klausia, or what do you mean? Yeah, I mean that. Like this, and this, like I think that the conversation with Titus is is difficult, but I also I think the conversation between ourselves and Klausia is difficult, and how those two things interact is difficult because there are several bottlenecks. And the thing that I discovered, I thought that I had, like I had the ace in the hole because I knew about the bullet, right? Mm-hmm. So I felt like I was so ahead of the curve, but it turns out that that didn't like open doors for me. And I'm still in these two conversations. There were still these big bottlenecks behind rhetoric, logic, and volition that Hmm. because of the way my character is made, which is all brawn, all, you know, dexterity, no intelligence, no intuition. um, I have a lot of difficulty overcoming. I have to imagine it's a very different experience with your character that is the opposite of my character, uh, minus being a rock star, plus being a racist, and a fa- and a latent fascist. A latent although fascist. It, it hasn't hasn't really had much opportunity to come out yet. Mm-hmm. A nationalist, I should say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sometimes you know I've hit one or two bottlenecks like that, and I think, like I said in the last episode, the way I play this game is I just sit on my skill points until mm. something comes up, and I've like put one or two skill points occasionally. In I think I put something in in composure maybe last time something like that so I've put one or two skill points in things that are not blue and purple skills but mm-hmm. um not, but not many I've I've tried to not bottleneck myself um, yeah so last time we ended with 
basically we had all the information from Titus and now we are going back up to Classia because we know, and this is something I was a little bit confused about at the end of last episode. So I just want to, you know, make it clear. Yeah. Um, so at the end of the conversation with Titus, what I learned is that basically he's just fed up and that's when he dismisses Elizabeth, the lawyer mm-hmm. and, um, rhetoric allowed me to kind of lean on the crew and fat Angus, uh, the guy we talked about last time, he breaks, um, and I kind of pull it apart, pull the, pull the kind of thing apart. And during that conversation, Titus told me that, um, uh, Clausia is on the run from the moral intern. Mm. So my character had the same thing where Fat Angus breaks down and basically it's in response to me saying, well, did y'all shoot him? And Fat Angus is like, well, we didn't shoot him, anybody. He was shot when we found him, right? Mm-hmm. And, and he says something equivalent to that to me. He says uh, something to the effect of he had already been shot. Yeah. So we didn't kill him, right? So it was, it's kind of like a reformulating of the same thing. But basically, as you were saying, there's a lot, the last episode, there's a lot that happens in this conversation to like bring all the disparate pieces of information together. You know, this is what in narrative, you know, design uh, used to be called a pinch point. I don't know what it's called anymore. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the idea that, that, you know, there are multiple pathways, but when you get here, we are all in coherence with one another about like what we know as a character. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, anyway, so we, we learn here this is where I got the esprit de corps thing of mm-hmm. the um, uh, uh, mortician or the morgue guy. But, yes. And yeah. at that point, you're caught up with me and I no longer have the ace in the hole, as it were. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so basically, before this point, you can kind of talk to um, Klausia, right? Mm-hmm. Because Klausia is the one that kind of refutes this narrative of uh, Lely, the dead private military contractor, uh, the fact that he raped her, and you you mentioned how like the way this dialogue from from Klausia is written, it's very much leaning into the, these kind of hazy lines around consent, and you know I think that makes us both a little uncomfortable. I don't really know what fully to do with that, but uh, yeah, she actually said I was looking over my notes before we recorded today. I think it's eighty nine percent. Uh, well, well, yeah, there's something to that effect too. And then she also said, I wrote this down. Uh, the reason she's unwilling to go along with Titus's plan kind of in my uh, version of the game, cause she, you know, went uh, along with it with you is she says, quote, they'll have to get someone more dot, dot, dot rapable. Right. So there, there's this kind of, she is, um, I, I don't know, not self-critical is not the right word. Right. But, uh, is purposefully saying, you know, I, I was part of a system of, you know, I don't know, moral gray area here. And, uh, you know, no one is innocent within it, right? Well, also, um, she also has lines, Klausia, where basically when you're talking about um, the private military contractor and the recording that he had on the tape that was provided to us by Titus, mm-hmm. where he talks about, you know, he references these war crimes, yeah. And uh, when you talk to Clausia about it, she says, hey, uh, you know, she basically, I think this is a quote, women are evil. If I had been in the same situation, like been given the same power, I would also be, you know, I would be going soldier of fortune or whatever the term was that was used mm-hmm. on the tape. I um, definitely did not get those lines. <laughs> yeah. One thing that I think that 
I'm getting from the conversations with Klausia early on that you didn't get is my intuition about physical instrument. I'm able mm-hmm. to look at her and be like, this is this some this is someone whose body is a weapon. Hmm. Um there, there were there were, I was getting this this is special forces, this is special training. There was something about the way that she moved or like the way that her body looked that I I knew. So I like picked up very early on that she had some kind of special training and you just referenced that Titus for you talked about how she was on the run in some way. Right. Yeah. And, and the, the, the last thing or not the last thing to say about classic, because we have to talk about this conversation, but the kind of additional piece that I, I think it would be very easy. Sorry. I'm to reformulate. I think it would be very easy to say that Klausia is being written as this kind of like Katie Royfe, like, um, you know, the morning after kind of character of like, uh, you know, it's a very kind of culturally conservative argument around uh, women and sex, which is that women after the fact choose whether they consented or not. Right. And this is something mm-hmm. that we hear from the right wing now. And it's something like I'm saying the, the morning after was published. I don't know. 25 years ago no longer than that maybe um but so it's a long-running argument kind of in you know conservative uh commentariat culture here right i don't think that that's what's being gone for although i think that we can't miss that there are alliances between these two things i think that what's being gone for is that Claudia is being written as a like a film noir character yeah. right she is a woman who uh, doesn't quite have control of herself, is is on the run, right? She's desperate. She's looking for people to protect her. That's the whole thing, kind of. You get the implication that she is having sex with Titus and that that has to do with kind of going to ground for the winter mm-hmm. um, and, and hiding here from the moral intern. And like you're saying, right, the, the game, not in my game, but in your game, you're giving this narrative of the body is a weapon, right? She is a femme fatale, and the only thing that she has, you know, is a passport that's buried somewhere or hidden in some water somewhere and her body and so i think the intent here if if we're going for intent and we're trying to think about intent of writing is that she is being fit into um a a character type you, you know that's long running in detective fiction and all kinds of things like that but that's also kind of in in this universe that disco elysium is putting together of like as you talked about last time you know the 11 year old on am- amphetamines yes. right like when you run those two things into one another you start coming out with some uh uh, you know, almost like real politic. That's just the way it is, bro. Sex is weird. It's confusing. Consent is weird. That just um, so happens to have consonants with a lot of reactionary ideas. Exactly, right? And so I, I think that, you know, I don't know if it is the responsibility of art to, like, explain itself. You know, I don't know if I necessarily think that. But I do think that, and this is something that we'll talk about with this episode, too, that where, or that we've talked about, I guess, a few times, where it seems like the um, the game is putting some kind of bumpers around ideas, right? Like, when, when, I, when my character told the guy to speak Revisholian. Kim called me an idiot. Um, mm-hmm. When I entertain ideas about, you know, her using sexuality or using this kind of ambiguity around sex to her benefit, there are no bumpers on that idea. Mm. The game doesn't call me an idiot. Mm-hmm. There, there are ways as a developer, or as a creator, or as a writer that you can control for consonants of ideas, and we're seeing them deployed in some places in this game yes. and not in others. Mm-hmm. And that is interesting. Yeah, it seems like, 
And I wonder if this is because of Kim's identity, because Kim in a lot of ways is like the person that follows you around and provides some kind form of feedback, at least initially. Mm -hmm. Um, And I haven't chosen very many like overtly sexist um, dialogue options, but I don't think Kim really pushes back on those if you go there. Hmm. Yeah, and there's something about, um, you know, Kim kind of wandering around Jiminy Cricket-like mm. <laughs> and, and being your conscience a little bit. That's that's a little bit strange because uh, you can get rid of Kim. And I'm, I'm interested in what happens when, when I have the conversation about, you know, speak Revisholian and Kim's not there to call me an idiot. Mm. You know, I wonder about what the what that looks like mm-hmm. um but anyway i'm sorry that was a long no. uh, kind of thing what i think i think a worthwhile discussion but can, can i can i pitch an idea here we haven't talked sure. about this yes i think that one of the reasons why it's difficult for us to tackle the conversational tree is that we get to different points at different times so would you mind if i just give you my my like an encapsulated more or less fully formed like how does this dynamic works itself out and i think a pretty good end point where we'll both meet and then yes. you can give me your version absolutely okay talk to titus with the lawyer there eventually uh, i'm able to like press and like make titus emotional enough that the lawyer leaves right and that's due to that dynamic with with fat angus and then Titus basically says, and this is after talking to Clausia, it, t- it takes those like those me refuting the 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 rape accusation, among other things, for him to get to this point, right? Mm-hmm. The lawyer leaves, and Titus gives me the story that okay, we didn't kill him. The what what actually happened was uh, Clausia comes down, and he had been shot, right? Mm-hmm. So at that point, everybody, you know, you know, gets together and, and we like implement this plan to, uh, to, you know, to, you know, basically treat the corpse and make it look like uh, he was hanged. You're able to talk to Clausia and she also gives this. The key point, though, is that there was another member of the Hardys, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, that person is named Ruby. Yep. And that she was the person that uh, initially Clausia came down and told about the corpse, right? And apparently, according to Titus, she was the person that, like, she, like, thought on her feet and, like, came up with this plan initially. And so I think that we both get to that point, right? Mm-hmm. So at this, so then this is where kind of the next step is. Because Ruby is the, this person, the, 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 the final member of the, the Hardy Boys, as it were. Um, we need to talk to them because they are a key part of this. It seems like from the conversation, Ruby is the same person that, um, that is the truck driver, the person with the sanded down shoe, right? It, it does seem that way. It yes. seems that way. So that's what that's like what Kim and I are working on. And here are the three bottlenecks in my conversation. And one of these I don't even know about. So I'm, I'm curious to see if you like overcame this one. There is a uh, f- yeah, four bottlenecks. One, you can <laughs> attempt visual calculus on a mirror to like look at angles that the bullet could come through the mirror because we know the bullet came through the mirror, smashed the mirror, had just been replaced, and went into Lely's mouth. Wait, window. Window. 
it went through the did i say mirror yeah you've been saying mirror. I'm, I'm just making sure that i'm not missing no anything. no you're exactly okay. right it window. is it is okay. window um so that's one bottleneck for the visual calculus second mm-hmm. bottleneck is um there is a volition check with Clausia when you're talking to Clausia, where basically my understanding is because i've tried it and i've failed is like you have to overcome her beguiling nature hmm because like i've tried this check and, and it's been like are you being beguiled and it's like oh no right so like there is some like your sexual attraction to Clausia is like clouding your ability to like read her seems to be mm-hmm. that check. There's a drama check with Clausia that I do not understand whatsoever. And then the final the fourth check is a logic check with uh Titus where you basically have to kind of present a theory to him as like that involves Ruby somehow as a suspect that would convince him to kind of help you locate her. Is this like an accurate picture of the game in this at this point? I mean, what's interesting about all these is I'm assuming that I went through these, but I don't I don't remember any of them as such, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, that's I guess pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. That so I these, I think the reason why they're, you could probably end the conversation, go through them because you have these numbers high. I have one in all of these, right? Yeah, I'm kind of scrubbing through to see where, you know, I'm getting white checks or something like that here. But mm-hmm. I don't even think that these are, I did have a drama check. With, um, with Clausia. With Clausia. What I have is a drama- the deal with that? Okay, so let me let me look real quick. I so I have a drama check in uh, in the uh, conversation with Clausia, and so we've gotten far enough. So you know, I have the conversation with Titus, and I go up to Clausia, and I'm like, "Look, I know I now have the whole story. You know, you were um, you were with Titus up here alone, and you went downstairs, and uh, he was dead. So what is up?" And then she explains the whole thing to me. Right? She says, "You know, we were." Um, uh, we were having sex and he, or not, she doesn't say we were having sex. She was saying we were partying and he died and I went and got help basically. Mm-hmm. And I uh, have a drama check that's legendary that says in God's name, wake up. <laughs> mm. And, um, and I get, it's, it's like I said, it's legendary. Um, I start out, I only have a drama of three and, uh, I get plus ones to it because, uh, I knew, I know it was love that did him in. Mm. and uh she uh didn't want to talk about the semen sample that i took from the corpse you took a semen sample from the corpse yeah i don't think i don't think we uh or i I had toxicology check for it we could do one thing for toxicology and we could check either for drugs or for semen Mm. and i opted for semen Mm mm-hmm I don't remember why I did that. I had no, um, I don't even remember having, I don't think I was smart enough to think of this, to think of toxicology yeah, at all. <laughs> well, because, well, Kim says it's probably not even worth doing it because it's been hanging up here for so long. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not worth So I, I'm assuming that your character is just like, yeah, that makes sense. But anyway, so I, I was able to do that and I, I went for it and I didn't get it. And so then I, um, uh, went for, um, uh, like this check and I like leveled up the skill a couple times in the conversation mm-hmm. and it produced. So I find out uh, a couple things here, right? Um, 
through the drama of it, I'm basically burrowing down into the uh, like film noir, you know, femme fatale thing. I'm figuring out that part of the reason she's doing this to kind of push all of this away is that this is not her real name. You find out from a check. I'm well. I'm getting that that it's not even her actual name. It is it, it, like there's multiple layers down, mm-hmm. basically. Hmm. Y- yeah. Okay. Interesting. Did you did you and did you succeed this volition check? I don't even remember there being a, a volition, volition check, check. Okay. and I'm like looking for it. So I don't. Gotcha. Do you remember what it was about? It was the beguiling check. So what what actually happens with this drama check is I have to pump a bunch of points into it, and it allows me to recognize this is what drama says. Who? What? Dear God, you've been lied to. Mm. She could have killed her lover and lied to everyone. She's not candid at all. She's smoking mirrors and will-o'-wisps. She probably didn't give you a real name either. Why would she? Arrest her immediately before she further entangles you in her web of lies. So maybe this this the difference between the volition check that you were talking about and the checks that I'm making here is it seems like my successful drama check kind of gets underneath all of that stuff. Okay. Um and so So you basically so, your your knowledge of drama you can see through the lie. Exactly. She's playing some sort of dramatic game, and I am too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, uh, so yeah, I immediately talk to Kim, turn to Kim, and I say, Kim, why have we not arrested her yet? Whoa. And this is, I think, where our games take pretty drastic turns. So how does this whole thing end for you with Klausia? I mean, are you able to end it since you're kind of bottlenecked here? So I'm bottlenecked here. So basically, I know that if I, going down to Titus, my game is now trying to convince Titus. The quest says, hey, you need to convince Titus. Uh have you explored the Whirling and Rags Hotel? Have you found like a possible murder weapon? Have you analyzed the bullet you found, etc.? Right. Mm, mm-hmm. So, I analyze the bullet with my like hand-eye coordination, and I discover um, while I'm looking through the uh, the area underneath the bookstore that we're going to talk about later. I discover an old um, rifle in like a hidden room. It's it's not operational, but the fact that I see it and it's an old breech loading rifle, which means it's like more powerful and military grade as opposed to the muzzle loaders you see mostly around here, right? Mm-hmm. So, given that I found that rifle and I like analyzed the the bullet and I'm like, oh, it was fired out of this rifle. Not this specific rifle, because this rifle is like operation, inoperational, inoperable, but from this model rifle. And I'm hmm. like, okay, so I've got a little bit more information there. I've got the rifle to show. that The rifle doesn't show, oh, this is the murder weapon. It shows, hey, there are caches of these, you know, pre-war rifles hidden around uh, Martinez. They're easily available. Also, here's the, here's the bullet. Also... And then another thing I do is I discover, like, the hidden passageway behind the whirling in rags. And I discover that by finding a key just outside the window where the Union people meet. And that is the door, and that is, like, the key to the door from the kitchen. And there is a passageway that goes up. There's, like, some old pinball machines back there, Mm because it used to be, like, an old pinball place. There's a passageway that goes up in a little dumbwaiter. 
and it leads to Clausia's patio. And just before the door that leads to the patio that is barred from the inside, there is a peephole that leads that you can view directly to Clausia's bed. So it is with like this constellation of evidence, the availability of the murder weapon, the hidden passageway behind the um, behind the uh, the whirling and rags inside the whirling and rags that lead directly to the patio. The fact that I did a visual calculus on the pane of glass and saw that there were like easy shooting angles from the patio, it would have been dark. The patio, the patio itself would have been dark. It would have been bright inside. It would have been very easy to make the shot. Mm -hmm. Um, And the fact that Ruby was the one that suggested, hey, let's act like we hang, we hang this person. That, that gives, if, if Ruby had been the one to shoot Lelly, that would have given Ruby like some motive to cover it up. Hmm. And it was all of those things plus a pair of glasses that increased my logic, <laughs> plus smoking a cigarette to increase my intelligence, <laughs> plus spending one point in logic after I failed that I was able to convince uh, Titus Hardy to like tell me more about Ruby. So my like story with Clausia is done. Like I have not, I haven't like figured out anything more from her. I haven't like gotten more information about Ruby from her, but I was able to talk to Titus and like have him give me like more information about Ruby and, and land on where she went. That's, that's where I am. It seems like you have a very different situation. Yeah. So I have not, none of these passages or anything like that. Got none of that. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> when I did the visual calculus, I came to basically the exact same conclusion. I did the... I'm, I'm going to talk about this before I talk about Clausia. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I basically did the exact same thing um, in the sense of like... It, everything points to, you know, 80 plus percent points to someone being on the patio and shooting inside. Mm-hmm. And then visual calculus gave me the ability to say, hey... Um, you know, what if there are other shooting positions, mm-hmm. you, you know, and my, and my visual calculus is like, yeah, that's pretty unlikely, but here are some other places. And, and so uh, I had to get a map mm-hmm. of the area, which I got from the bookstore, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. But uh, I get the map and I come back here and then basically visual visual calculus runs through three different positions that have sight lines to this window. Uh, there's one at a place called Land's Inn. There's one on an islet a little bit to the north of the um, uh, the fishing village that's across the canal that we can't get to yet. And then there is one on the boardwalk that's also over there. Mm-hmm. And basically, you can see into this window from all those positions. And, you know, my visual calculus is running through and saying, like, oh, this is like a 2% shot. This is like a 4% shot, right? So very, very unlikely, but... That, that's as far as I've gotten as far as like solving where the, the shot came from. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know anything about these secret passages. So it's basically someone was either standing out here and could have shot inside or it's from somewhere way off. And that's as far as I've gotten. But it seems like your question to Kim, which is why haven't we arrested her yet, is not the implication that it sounds... No. Has nothing to do with that. Well, I know, but... Like, but like, is not the question have like, doesn't that in kind of imply that you could, you suspect Clausia? 
Well, so this is why. This is how it comes up. Um, when I'm having a conversation with Claudia, I have determined already, right, through drama and through some thinking and talking, I have determined that, you know, she, and she's already told me she's on the run from the moral intern, and mm-hmm. Titus has told me that too, that she she's involved in this some some way. You know, she's a flight risk, basically. Mm-hmm. That she is intimately involved with this crime. It is only through the kind of constraints of genre that I haven't even considered her as being, uh, you know, uh, someone who did the murder yet. And so this is like the opening of the door to think about what do I need to do to keep her from running away? Mm. And so this conversation kind of goes and, um, uh, you know, I I find out her name is not Klausia and she gives me another name. And then I kind of determined that that's not a real name either. Um, mm. She tells me that, you know, she's on the run from the moral intern. She gives me a little bit of information about that. She tells me where her passport and documents are, that they're hidden under a buoy uh, over near the boardwalk. And um, she explains that she thinks, this is how I learned, that she thinks that Ruby might have killed Laylee. Um, and the reason for that is that Ruby was attracted to Clausia, and and maybe uh, we get the implication that maybe Ruby thought there was a relationship there, and that Clausia was purposefully kind of leading her on. Mm. The reason that she was leading her on is she says Ruby was the leader of the Hardy Boys, mm. not Titus. She says like Titus is you know Titus Hardy is like ostensibly the leader, but the the brains of the operation, the person who made stuff go, stuff like that, that was all Ruby. Is what she says. And so then as this is kind of going, right, I'm like doing doing my cop cop thoughts, right? And I'm repeatedly kind of coming to the conclusion that it it might be a good idea to keep her from running away. Because this is what she does. Yeah. Right. I mean, she's on the run from the moral intern. The moral intern, if people don't remember, is kind of It's like the it's, NG, like uh the World Bank. Yeah, it's like the IMF and the EU kind of crammed into one, and NATO kind of all Mm -hmm. crammed into one, right? So it's this, you know, um, pseudo-occupational force that, like, backs currency and gives authority to certain things. So, like, the RCM is theoretically given authority by the moral intern. And we're basically, here in Revishal, we are living under, like, almost a provisional government in perpetuity and our ward is the moral intern. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she was engaged with like corporate espionage, which explains why the the financial cops are after her. She's involved in something. She says basically she was involved in a mission that went wrong and that it ultimately wasn't her fault, but she'll get killed for it. Mm-hmm. And she says, if you take me in, if my name is entered into the moral intern system the databases the database that you plug into i will be killed and i say well look i don't know what to tell you i'm just doing my job damn and i arrested her damn yeah yeah she says her name is katarzine alessia um and 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 like i start doing all this encyclopedic thought that's like actually this is not even a name from Aranyi, this is a name from Grodd. And so, like, I, you know, I start doing this all kinds of stuff, uh, you know, all, all of this, like, thought about what she's really doing. So, I mean, you there, are a racist Robocop. 
<laughs> well, yeah, kind of, right? In the sense of it's like, I know everything about everyone's nationality. It matters a whole lot to me. And it matters a lot to, you know, like if you lie. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I will not, uh, you know, I, I'm the judge mm-hmm. <laughs> from Blood Meridian. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah. And so I told, I arrested her for uh, misrepresentation of, um, no, no, no. I arrested her under suspicion of murder. And mm-hmm. that's how, that's in her last ditch effort. That's why she says Ruby probably did it. And I said, we don't really know. No way of knowing. You have no proof. And so Kim arrests Clossier, and he is gone the rest of the day. Because he's got a transporter to the precinct. Yeah, exactly. Damn. Yeah, and so I don't have Kim the rest of the day, which is interesting. And Titus Hardy, I think whatever the check that you're having to make with him, um, I don't have to make that because he watches her get marched out. And that has had some effect on the way that he interacts with me. Wow. And so, so you're and able so, to talk to Titus and like he gives you information about Ruby? He gives me a little bit more information about Ruby, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um I don't think a whole lot or anything like that. Kind of says, oh, she probably went to ground over on the coast. He doesn't tell me that actually. Oh. But he does say like she probably went to ground, she's hiding. We do, we legitimately don't know where she is, that kind of thing. Wow. Um I have this inland empire thing, the conversation with myself. Um and uh you know, I, I get to have this conversation where I'm like, I know I'm right. You know, I know I was right to arrest her in Inland Empire, right? Which is this, like, it's the film noir instinct, right? That, like, something is hiding behind the curtains of reality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, and and then I'm like, well, what, what was involved with communism here? Communism killed this guy. What, like... What did this have to do with communism? <laughs> mm-hmm. And Inland Empire is like, you don't know. You, you have no idea. And then I'm like, it killed him. It must have. And he's like, no, communism is innocent in this. Wow. (laughs) Implying that love really did do him in. Interesting. Yeah. Um, But within that, you know, within the visual calculus, all that kind of stuff, the the other thing to add is that while they're having sex, Laylee is sitting there and, or I mean, he's not sitting there. (laughs) He's having sex and he is on top, presumably, and he opens up his mouth. And when he opens his mouth, the bullet comes through the shattered window that you talked about and kills him. And then mm-hmm. they, they kind of figure out how to cover it up. Yeah, that seems to be the implication. So we're more or less in the same area in terms of the investigation. The only difference is I lack the psyche or intellect to be able to make the connection to be like, I should have Clausia arrested. Yeah. I'm just like a hopeless cop that is like, okay, well, you, you've told a story. You were right there when a guy died from a, a gunshot wound to the mouth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I think that I get a little bit, maybe I didn't get a bonus to it, but I'd been primed a little bit for that because she'd already lied a couple times about different things. So she, for example, said, you know, we were both high and I was just drunk and he was like super high and then he, he died. And, but then Titus had told me she ran down the stairs and looked strung out and looked like really high. Exactly. She looked like she was on speed. And so I was able to be like, well, but you said blah, blah, blah. And and she's like, yeah, well, I did one of his lines, obviously, to even out. Mm-hmm. And so there's, so there's a, a, you know, the game gives you the bones to be like, she's lying very 
regularly about things in this crime that don't seem to matter one way or the other. What is she, what else is she keeping? So, you know, I, in some level, on some level, I'm arresting her just to see what happens here. And I'm, I'm role playing this like, you know, hyper cop, you know, by the book kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so on, on some level, that's just, you know, me role playing this character to the best of my ability. But on the other hand, it, it seems like the game is giving you all the bones to not, you know, to, to really kind of think about, what is the truth here? What's being told? That kind of thing. This really explains our very different experiences because you cracked this in the conversation with Klausia and I had to like feel like I had to go on a scavenger hunt to get little little bibs and bobs, uh, like tiny little piecemeal bonuses to one logic check in order to convince Titus. I had to like gather a bunch of evidence and do some exploring so that I can present him like a cogent theory as to why Ruby would be a sub- suspect. But it also imply it also means that in my game universe Ruby is more of a suspect than in yours. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me it's like pure intuition and like picking up on cues and then finding the evidence, right? If you're talking about you know two kinds of evidence gathering here being being displayed, one is like the evidence of the lawyer right which is like all these pieces of discourse and figuring out how they all fit together and then figuring out what gets you underneath those things to find like the agreed upon material reality truth right whereas for Mm -hmm. you it's like you are going out into the material of the world and trying to like hammer all this shit together to to create a case in some ways you're you're a little bit more of like the uh the gumshoe you know colombo Exactly. You're Columboing it up. And I'm just like freewheeling, you know, kind of coming to these conclusions. You are the Holmes. Yes. Yeah, Much yeah, more yeah. Holmesian en- energy over there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it, this is going, I wonder if this is going to have some maybe implications down the road. I don't know how, how this is going to pan out. But uh, so that's kind of where the main story drops off because to be honest you cannot advance this main story any further until the third day and we're still on the second day Mm -hmm. Um, because the the kind of half of the map of the of this game uh is locked behind a canal um and basically the canal like the little canal bridge is uh is you know not granting access to the other this other kind of half of the map these islands so we just have to, uh, we're going to have to put a pin in the main quest for now. So we decided to do a little side quest. Oh, and, uh, and one, uh, just one thing to yeah. add to that. You are explicitly now on the hunt for Ruby who has gone to ground somewhere in the other part of this city that you can't get to. Like that's and, your like immediate main goal. Yes. And the Hardy boys, after I like put together, showed them all of this stuff, they, they have like more or less internally turned on her they're like like after mm. i presented all the evidence like all the hardy boards are like damn she did it didn't she mm. mm-hmm. yeah so i'm not in that spot i'm still like hmm i'm pretty sure that they were murdered i i'm pretty sure Klausia is involved in some way in mm-hmm. the sense of like her actions in the world have led Laylee to be killed perhaps because it 80 percent came from the, from this roof right mm-hmm but I really don't know who did it. I mean, Ruby's a good suspect, but I really don't know who did it. I don't really know with what weapon they did it because I haven't seen the bullet. Um, I don't really know, you know, like what the circumstances were that would allow that to happen. Maybe I mean, but you've got you've got motive. I, I have motive, right? And that's why Ruby's like the best sub- suspect so far. But mm-hmm. 
it, it feels like you have a bunch of data points to be like, Ruby is the person I'm looking for. Yeah. And I really just have a location, like as far as hard evidence is concerned. Yeah. Okay. So I'll definitely different. We're going to have to see how that uh, plays out. Did you talk to anybody else? Uh, you know, any other incidental stuff? I had a I had a thought cabinet thing mature after talking to the mega rich light bending guy. <laughs> what, what, did, what, what matured? It's a thought about bankruptcy. Okay. And every time I fail a white check, I I get a real because it's like the ultimate success. Capitalism's the ultimate like success fail um, ideology, right? Mm -hmm. It's like it's just you got to pick yourself up and try again. So every time I fail a white check, I, I get a little bit of money. The uh, no, I didn't. I my uh, nationalistic thoughts finally uh, matured, but mm -hmm. it hasn't really come up yet. So. Not monarchist, but nationalist, right? Nationalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, welcome to Revishol. Gotcha. That mm. kind of, you know, the racist lorry driver. That kind of. I wonder if you can, I wonder if you, like, talk to Rene, the old, uh, you know, royalist soldier, if you could, if you could get some monarchist going. I don't know who you're talking about. Oh, so you haven't talked to Renee? No, okay. I'm doing I'm doing cop shit, man. I don't You're have doing time. cop shit. Yeah, I uh, we'll we'll talk about him probably later. I don't know. Did mm -hmm. you pick up some flowers on Claudia's uh, balcony? No. Oh, interesting. So when you're talking to Claudia, there can you can notice there's these uh, this little white flower on her balcony, and the wind picks it up, and with my hand eye coordination, I'm able to like grab it before it flies away. Hmm. And I talked to Kim about it, and he's like, oh, yeah, those are, um, they're called bells, right? Victory bells. Hmm. And he says that they were something that the communists, I think, wore on their left side before they were going out to, uh, to fight in the, in the revolution. Oh, it's the, the poppy. Yeah. Got it. But he said, actually, it's a misnomer to think it's purely a communist symbol because actually both sides were it. And it was much more, it was much less about uh, a symbol of what ideology you represented. It was more of a little ritual to do with like the men were given these by, you know, significant others by the girls before they got on the train as, hmm. you know, as like a good luck token. And both sides actually used it, but maybe on different sides of the, of the jacket. And I ask, hey, or you know, what time do these blossom? And he's like, this is too early um, for hmm. these for these to blossom. Actually, these are like we're a couple months out and still winter, right? Um, and uh, and I was able to talk to this war vet who's playing uh, bull, like a little a little game with some heavy metal balls, um, out near like a crater in front of the Whirling and Rags Hotel. And uh, and he confirmed this like he he was a monarchist. and He's actually like a war hero, basically. Jeez. Yeah, he um, like he 100 was, years old. Yeah, he's 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 like an old dude. But during the, the revolution, he fought against the communists and he actually was uh, he was awarded the um, like two of the highest honors of the kind of the king because he saved this like princeling or duke's son like some like snob who he hated because this person was like effete and not masculine enough for him right mm -hmm. um and also just had no business being out on in on the battlefield in his words this guy's jaw got crushed by a horse after he got shot off of his horse 
and Renee dragged him like over the course of two days, seven kilometers, um, with them both with like Renee's um, knee shattered. And on the way to like dr- dragging this guy to get picked up by the uh, cavalry, um, Renee killed three communists. Jeez. Yeah. So he's like, he, he is just this like, walking war scar but he confirmed this uh like the account on the um on the flowers and he was like yeah this is either incredibly unseasonably early or he was like looking at it and was like they also look like they could be preserved Hmm. so anyway i i haven't been able to to figure out what they were doing on clausia's balcony just yet but there Hmm. they were someone's got a hot house or i don't know yeah a, hy- a hyperbaric chamber mm-hmm. <laughs> to prevent age and decay. Yeah. Um, but, well, let's, uh, the other thing we did here is we talked, we learned a little bit about a thing called the doomed commercial district. Yes, there's a curse. <laughs> there's a curse. There's a specter uh, ha- haunting Martin- Martinet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's a doomed commercial building. So you can go into this uh, building that's called, I want to get the name right, um, it's it's a bookstore and there's like a little girl sitting outside and she's like hawking books at you. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can go inside and you find out that the name of the bookstore is Crime, Romance, and Biographies of Famous People. Yes, the three genres. <laughs> yeah. the, th- <laughs> the three most, uh, you know, famous genres. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, the most sellable genres. And you uh, talk to this woman named uh, Pleasance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she explains that uh, she's the owner of the bookstore, and I was able to talk to her about like why her child isn't in school and why her child is outside like hawking people books. Yeah, what angle did you take on that? I said that was that was forced labor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said that was bad. I mean, I you know I told you I'm a communist mm-hmm. or trying to become one, and, but a nationalist uh, communist. Yeah, nationalist communist. And so, uh, yeah, I was like, yeah, the, you know, the revolution should have abolished this. This should be, you know, impossible. And she was like, no, it's good. It's good for children to learn the, the you know, work ethic uh, early on. Mm. But, yeah, I talked to her quite a bit. And she basically just says, hey, you know, you should walk around, uh, check things out. I've already been here in here one time for uh, to get that map. Mm-hmm. And I go over to these curtains and they look mysterious to me. Yeah, they've got a little, um, like a little trinket hanging off of them. Did you see that? I did not see that. Yeah, it's like it's like a little, uh, I don't know the word for it, but like a little, um, some kind of token of of perhaps magical power. Mm, some sort of tchotchke. Sure. Mm-hmm. But I think when you mess around with the curtains, uh, Pleasance uh, tells you, hey, stop that. No, you, that's employees only, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I ripped those bad boys down, I, I, and, and then and then she was like, "Okay, we well, need to come talk to me because this is serious." Yeah, I I didn't I didn't rip them down, uh, but I did like not mess with them. And I walked back to her and talked to her, and yeah, she basically explains, "Look, there's a curse here. Um, this place is this whole building is the doomed commercial district. Every business that operates here fails." Mm. And she explains that she's brought in like all of these people, you know, si- the, like Simonies, uh, uh, like occultists uh, mm-hmm. she's brought in. Um, she she uses like a bunch of like 
real racist anthropological language to talk about other people and my logic kicked in or no my rhetoric kicked in and he was like I don't think I don't think you should talk about people that way. <laughs> He's like, that seems bad to talk about, uh, you know, to use all these like anthropological terms for human beings. Um, but uh, she, yeah, she just says the reality is is that there's something here. There's a uh, I forget the word she uses. An entity. Uh, she has a specific word though. Mm. Um, God, it's like a void. Void wraiths. <laughs> void wraiths, okay. Yeah, she tells me that there are void wraiths um, that cause commercial failure in this building. And my drama allows me to convince her to investigate. I kind of take on the, you know, ghost hunters kind of vibe here. And I I'm do like, a, look. Yeah, I do a yeah. little bit with Kim to try to do that, but I fail it. My drama is not high enough. Mm. So I was not able to, like, convince her to hand me over the keys to, like, get back behind her shop. Hmm. Well, she, so she handed it over to me. Kim's not here, so it's oh. just me freewheeling on my mm-hmm. own here. But my, my drama's high enough that I'm allowed her to do it. I tell her I'm the void rem, void revenant. <laughs> that That's like what I'm about. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a cop, but I'm also the void revenant. And so I'm my ability to do this uh, is going to be pretty high. And she says, okay, well, if you've got it, you know, here's the key. She gives me a key to go through a back door to access this kind of shopping complex, basically. Mm-hmm. How do you get back there? Fucking put my head down, run through that door. <laughs> I I do it once and I like lose a health, but I've got like nine health. I've got so much health. <laughs> um, And then I, I, I like crack it real good. And it's like, you're going to have to do this one more time to break the door. And, um, <laughs> You have a couple of, like, options, like, in terms of what you say, uh, and some are pretty funny, but I, mean, but I just, like, I pick the one that's, like, run towards the door and yell, fuck my head! <laughs> <laughs> so I smash down the door. Great. Yeah. And, uh, well, what do you learn in here? It's a bunch of, like, the remnants of, like, failed commercial enterprises so the first the first thing you go into is like an old gym like an old boxing gym um you know you could talk to kim about this place and there's a sweet like barbell set up for a clean and snatch basically or a deadlift Mm -hmm. um and I, i lift that thing like nothing kim's like kim's like very impressive I, I could. It, it was like my logic or my visual calculus. No, my conceptualization, I think, was like, yeah, this thing's not even secured correctly. It's a health hazard. It's like, I oh, I saw that, that, but I just didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't fall apart or anything on you? No, I think that if you are, uh, if you're too weak and you try it, there's nothing keeping the um, the weights on the ends. Like you don't have mm-hmm. the clips on. Mm-hmm. So I I would imagine that if you failed it, like something it would catastrophic failure would occur like if you weren't strong enough to keep it level yeah i I didn't bother doing that um there is a game studio yeah very special game studio um in the bookstore we saw basically dungeons and dragons manuals (laughs) like whirl yeah whirl untethered whirl untethered and you go into this place and there's like this big uh, kind of uh, tape deck computer system, right? Hooked up with a bunch of wires. And there are these black whiteboards 
with uh, depictions of these these like little elfin elven creatures called kind of gremlin creatures called those whirls, right? Oh no, they're called Welkins. Welkins, yes. And you kind of go through the little illustrations of the Welkins, and then there's like one with a big beard, and it's got like it, it's indicating you're like, oh my god, a Welkin supremacist. Yeah, and it's like there's like this Welkin plot to like eliminate all non-Welkin beings. Um, so you talk to Kim about it, and Kim like puts it together for me actually, where he's like, "What this is is like instead of having one campaign, like these people were connecting to like a central game master that was running several com- campaigns concurrently." And, like, coordinating them all, and they would, like, interact. So they basically made, like, the lowest lo-fi MMORPG. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. So they, they, they this was, like, the rim. And so you looked into their, um, their... You could look in their financials and see that, like, with ev- every time they lost funding, they only got more ambitious... And the sheer amount of the technological cost to keep these lines open and like have them all connect to a central operator just became so great that they they failed under their they, you know, they collapsed under their own weight. Uh, this is where not having Kim is it doesn't help you out, right? So I like see all this stuff about worlds, and I was like, <laughs> and Welkins, and I was like, wow. This is impressive stuff. <laughs> like I didn't have any context for it, and I and I got the idea that they were using telephone conversations to like build a game, mm-hmm. but that's all. Mm. Did you find the little filament thing and plug it into the machine? Yeah. So there's a uh, uh, yeah, a little filament you plug it into a machine, and it connects to a thing called the Easton Solendian repeater station. And in a world without computation, this is how you password protect things. You, like, hook a projector up to a telephone or or a radio system. And it goes to an operator. Yeah. And the operator is like, what's the password? (laughs) Yeah. And she tells me that um, the company is named Fortress Ardent. And... um, and I was like, okay, cool. And she was like, well, what's the password? And I was like, I do not know. <laughs> yep. Um, and she says, well, when you have that, you know, call me back. So, you know, basically the idea is like, you can learn this later in the game. Mm-hmm. But is my impression. I looked yeah. around and couldn't find it. Yeah, I couldn't find the password either. Maybe it escaped me. I might, I might go back and try to figure this out. But um, that's basically that. And you can kind of keep exploring. There's some creepy mannequins. There's some like remnants of other weird businesses that it won. Just the, you know, the detrius of of like consumer locations. And eventually you get to like a little basement with a furnace. Did you find this little, mm-hmm. you know, uh, furnace that you could yell into? Mm-hmm. I think they call it a cellar. Well, you're really kind of burying the lead here because there's a giant refrigerator shaped like a polar bear <laughs> down here. <laughs> And, and boy, was my face red. <laughs> I know. That's where he could have shoved the body, huh? Yeah, immediately. Mm-hmm. And and this is the, ter- the terrible thing, too. As soon as I saw it, I thought, oh, yeah, this is the thing I missed in my first playthrough, too. Damn. <laughs> I was like, oh, I could have remembered where this fridge was, but um, I didn't. And so, mm-hmm. obviously, I didn't put the, the body there. 
And there, there's that, and there's also apparently uh, like something in, I, I read a note that explains that there is like another filament or something like that in an ice cream maker, mm-hmm. but the ice cream maker requires a, um, it's frozen shut, and it requires a... Super pry bar. Yeah, super pry bar. My, my current pry bar wouldn't, would not work. It was bending under the weight, so... Mm-hmm. The only thing to really do down here, like you're saying, is look at this big furnace and uh, do some stuff to it. Yeah, you can kind of, you hear voices. You hear a voice, at least, up the furnace. And I just bellow into the furnace after kicking it. I had I got yeah. a bonus to getting the attention of whoever was there because I kicked it. And a voice comes uh, down and is like, hey, I'll, uh, I'll pull back the curtain for you so you can, you can get up here. Um. So that's nice. So, but I do kind of explore the rest of this area. There is a place in kind of the bottom mm, uh, left-hand yeah. corner of this room where I saw that like stockpile of old guns. Yeah, I found the same thing. It says, uh, in, but you know, I I didn't have the bullet, so I you know I don't have that additional kind of context for any of it. And so mm-hmm. it literally just says, you know, this is a it said this is a, you know a hidden rifle zone. Uh, you know, this is a, a stockpile from the revolution. And it did give me like the little factoid that if this is here, then that means there's weapons that could be anywhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, and so we don't even have to be thinking about like specific people who might have access to weapons. Anyone could theoretically have a gun. Mm. So it kind of like blows my case out even wider mm-hmm. <laughs> in some ways. Although you know the game's not telling me that. Now I do disconnect the stuff down here. Uh, that you can go to a gent like the electrical. Like, mm. I guess the box, the equivalent thereof, and you can disconnect the refrigerator, which has just been running for God knows how long. It's this monstrous, really energy inefficient refrigerator that's been running. And I kind of talked to Ken and he's like, oh, no, no wonder the businesses here have so much problem. They're running up this electrical bill um, long after this business has been has been gone. And uh, and I also like unhook the um, the ice cream maker that you can open which gives you a little bit of a bonus to opening it, but it's just nowhere close to sufficient to overcoming the negative 20 because you don't have the right tool. Yeah, I didn't unplug uh, either of them um, because, one, I didn't know what would happen. There was no Kim there to to tell me. And two, uh, the note that I got, there's like a little note you can read about the filament or whatever that's in the ice cream maker, Mm -hmm. and it said specifically it needs to be refrigerated. Oh. So I was afraid that it would like thaw out and like ruin whatever's in there, so I didn't unplug it. Okay. So yeah, then uh, after that, I kind of go back up to this uh, curtain that has been removed, like on on the floor uh, above. And, um, oh gosh, what was this character's name? Do you have that written down? Uh, yeah, she is a novelty dice maker, and mm-hmm. her name is Neha. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know what? Uh, things that we were talking about last time, about you know who gets named like a qualifier at the beginning. You, you, you know, we were talking about Fat Angus, right? Yes. This, this kind of qualifier. Um, something that is, uh, you know, I don't think novelty dice maker necessarily is one of those. That seems to be just a profession, novelty dice maker. But uh, outside of the bookstore, there is a woman named Working Class Woman. Mm. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just, I'm now thinking about that. And so, you know. No, I mean, that's probably a, game. probably a good, a good thing to keep your eye on in terms of like the way people are named. Because I do mm-hmm. think that they're, they're treated in a certain way. Yep, but her but, name is ne- Neha. I think. Yeah, and she's just got this little nook here, uh, 
in what amounts to like the remnants of this chimney. Like this is the smokestack that she has like set up shop in. You can talk to her and ask her about her business. You can ask her a bunch of questions. And I don't know, what do you talk to this person about? Yeah, I just kind of found out what she was up to and I, you know, her window overlooks the um the courtyard where the body was hanging. So mm-hmm. I asked her about, you know, the night that it happened and she's like, look, you know, if it's lit up in here, it's completely dark out there. There's no lights. So I didn't see anything. Uh, and she says that she's always wearing her headphones listening to basically uh, like shortwave radio broadcasts that people are making. Mm-hmm. She says mostly it's just people teaching you how to curse in different languages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, it's some music and, and chatter and things like that. Um, so she, she didn't really hear anything. She watched, you know, the Kuno, uh, throw stones at it for days. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of it. Uh, I mean, we talk about novelty dice, but as far as like big game stuff, she really doesn't. She'll give you some background on the various businesses that came and went. Mm -hmm. Um, talk about like the polar bear thing. Talk about, um, the, the nerds doing the MMORPG um, she has a particular take on, you know, when you bring up the doomed commercial district with her, she's very dismissive because she used to be a jewelry maker and she obviously had like a really bad experience with it. Um, she, I get a visceral reaction from her and my gut tells me that she had like a bad experience with like other jewelers in the profession. Mm. But she ran her first shop, which was a jewelry business that was maybe her, her parents helped her out on it into the ground. Um, so she has a very, you know, she has like a, this attitude of like, I, I tried my hand in business and I failed, but I like kept trying and I found my niche and now I, you know, I'm not rolling in dough right now, but I'm, I'm doing just fine. So all these other businesses, she, she like explains why they failed. So she does not buy any kind of supernatural explanation for the doom commercial district at all. No, not at all. Um, and she even, she's been doing the dice thing for like 10 years or something, a yeah. long time. Um, and yeah, so she's a little bit like bullish on, well, I guess what's interesting about it is that she's like, yeah, they just failed because of the things that make businesses fail. And she kind of tells you <laughs> for every one of those businesses why that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting about that too is that she is ultimately not like a defender of capitalism. You know, uh, she says that because uh, when I I bring it up, I'm like, well, look, I got this this lady out here who believes that they're a void race. <laughs> like, what am I supposed to tell her? And she's like, well, maybe the curse was capitalism. Did you ever think about that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's you know a little bit. You know, I don't think she's like these businesses failed and that's a good thing. She's no. like these businesses fail because businesses fail. That's part of the system, and the system is unfair. Um, and that's just how it is. You know, she's yeah. a little bit of like a, a economic realist about it, I guess. Yeah. I tell her, I, I kind of ask her more questions and she drops that the whirling in rags is actually <laughs> a part of the doomed commercial district. Like it was built at the same time as like a part of the same complex. And that's one of the reasons why it's actually on the call box across the street. Oh my God. Did you get that? No, I didn't realize that it was uh, on the, like, yeah, the little call box thing. Yeah, so um, I talked to her about that, and 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 so, th- like, that's one thing I put in my mind is, oh, well, like, the whirling in rags, 
you know, is is do seems to be doing fine. So, you know, maybe this idea of like the doomed commercial district, you know, dooms you forever isn't that great. But then I realized, oh, my God, the reason why her business has been successful is she's technically not in the building. She's in the chimney. <laughs> and I tell her that I'm like, look, I, I think I understand. I, I, I had this big thing and I was like, I know why you aren't uh, in you know, you are in ruins. I know why you've been successful. And she's like, why? You, how about you tell me why? And I was like, you're in the chimney. You're not in the building. And she just kind of completely dismisses me <laughs> with that idea. Um, mm. Now, I did click on every button at the call box downstairs. Mm -hmm. And there is one business in particular that I called and had a deeply strange experience. I called like this business was Slipstream and a, wo and a woman answers. Mm -hmm. And she recognizes my voice. And she, she like starts calling me a, a name that is not Harry. And she uh -huh. starts crying. And eventually I hang up. And I ask uh, Neha about it. Mm-hmm. And she's like, that's impossible. That business, like, you know, went under and was bought out over 100 years ago. <laughs> yeah, they were making helicopter blades and then pivoted to making skis. <laughs> yes. I had uh, physical instruments interjected in me. Like, it, there, there's a moment where you realize, ooh, you could make a sword out of that. But then you realize it would take too much time. <laughs> um, but anyway, she's like, that's impossible. You couldn't have. You, you just got pranked. And it's just, mm -hmm. it just is left in the air there that uh. it is possible that I called like someone from the past. The like, void. Yeah. <laughs> there's some, there's some kind of something bad at, wor at work here. So I went back to, um, Pleasance, Pleasance, something like mm -hmm. that. Pleasance, I think. Mm -hmm. I, I don't really know. Uh. Well, just just one thing uh, yeah. that I want to say. When the one, because I also read about all these businesses, the one that I like the most is when she's talking about the game company, and she says, uh, "Just as the money started to run out, they began to really complain about capitalism and how, <laughs> yes. how hard it was to break into the industry." Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I thought that was very funny. Yeah, um, yeah, a little bit of uh, maybe uh, you know making fun of themselves as a mm -hmm. game development company, but. Uh, but yes, yeah, so you went back and talked to Pleasance. Yeah, and I told her, hey, um, I want you to know about this doomed commercial district. It doesn't make sense. There are just inconsistencies that we've been told about. Mm -hmm. And uh, and she said, like what? And I, I really messed up. And I said, well, there's this dice maker up there, and she's doing fine. So it can't, it, it can't be that bad, right? And she's like, you idiot. She is the one siphoning off all the psychic energy. She's the cause of the curse. You idiot. And that's it. That's how the quest ends for me. Oh. I was able to have, like, all kinds of other conversations with her. Yeah, um, my, my quest completes there, and it's, like, done. Uh, yeah, I was able to kind of keep that going. I was like, no, 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 no. I was like... It's probably capitalism. And she's like, it cannot be capitalism. Are you telling me that a whole economic system is cursed? <laughs> and I could be like, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, basically. She's like, no, 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 that's that's fake. And then we kind of talk about her business ideas. And she's like, yeah, you know, initially I wanted to open up a store that wasn't a bookstore that just sold like esoteric items to protect people from bad energy. But uh, my husband didn't think that'd be a very good business idea. So I opened up a bookstore instead. Mm. Uh, and in here, my, my quest ends too. But 
she basically, yeah, my logic maybe, one of my, you know, um, blue skills, I think, basically in the middle of this end of the quest was like, yeah, she believes this so strongly that you are not going to be able to convince her of anything. Oh, that's and why. I, so I got that too. Gotcha. Okay. Mm-hmm. Huh. What? So this is our first side quest, true and proper in this game, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where, where do you put this? How, how do you, how do you rate this experience? This, you know, a lot of games have a real hard and like hard distinction between the way main quests feel versus the way side quests feel. Certainly this felt different. How, how do, what do you think about the way it worked? Uh, well, I, I, I think what's interesting kind of on an affective level about this game mm-hmm. is that I think a lot of people talk about how cool it is that like, you know, things connect together. I think that is a, a big deal. And how interesting it is that like it hits all these different tones. Um, you know, so like it's very funny. And I think a lot of the things we were just talking about in this quest are very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but also like serious and kind of melancholic, you know, think about a lot of the stuff that you that or that I you know learned about Klausia and her like history and how, you know, getting kind of kicked around the world. Think about like the kind of melancholy of uh, Laylee and his war wounds and how all that kind of stuff works, right? Mm -hmm. He hits a lot of different registers. What's interesting to me is that this is a side quest that's almost entirely funny. Um, And I think that the way that we've been playing this game, the way that we've been playing this game is not the way that you would naturally play it in the sense that I don't think you would be mainlining the main quest and then kind of doing side content on the side. I think a lot of this kind of naturally flows together as you're discovering things and kind of walking around and talking to people and and maybe getting bottlenecked and having to get, you know, experience points. And so what's interesting to me is that I think the way that we've been playing it, it seems to have very distinct and different registers. Mm -hmm. But if you're playing it kind of naturally... It all blends together in a melange. Exactly, exactly. And I think Mm -hmm. that's interesting. Mm -hmm. No, I I think you're right in terms of the way we're playing it. I do think the most people, when they they get out with Kim, they probably see the corpse. And like a lot of people, if they fail that fortitude check and they're like, hey, you need to just get your shit together. They're probably going about out across the street and going in that bookstore, right? Yeah, I, I imagine if you had a heat map of like activity after that failed check, a large percentage of players go in the bookstore. Um, you know, it's. I think that when you play it in kind of an organic way where you just kind of wander around, you probably, maybe you don't even do the quest, but you just get the hook for the quest and you kind of like, I think that there's kind of a lot of modern instincts that RPG players have played, whether you're playing Skyrim or whatever, where you're like, okay, I'm going to survey an area, start a bunch of quests, and then once I have them, I can kind of like budget my time uh, and kind of like have have a couple of goals and maybe go work in this area because I think that there's some efficiencies with these quests. Like a lot, there's there's a lot of like you know efficiency minded players that have been kind of carved out of uh, of folks that play these games regularly yeah it only takes one or two quests where you realize you gotta like go to the same place two times in a row yeah when you could have done those quests at the same time to make you really start thinking like okay i want to talk to everybody that's got a big old yellow you know Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. exclamation point over their head Mm -hmm. (laughs) i'm gonna figure out what they're up to so yeah i mean i think that this runs against 
you know, if, if, uh, you know, this game is referencing obviously Planescape Torment and that kind of like milieu of games. Um, if you are the kind of RPG player that did not play those CRPGs, then I think the, um, kind of naturalistic design to this game is like fresh and new and cool. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to experiment in that zone. Did you get any things from the thought cabinet from, uh, from the dice maker? Nope. I, uh, I did ask for some die. Oh, I did. I also asked for some die. What kind of die you get? Uh, I said, uh, you know, why don't you just whip it up? Because you can have all kinds of things. You know, you can say, I want the most special die you have. I want, I want a cursed mysterious. die. <laughs> yeah, right. So you can you can have all these qualifiers. And I said, you know what? I just want your, you know, you pick. You pick for me. And so she pulls out two dice. Uh, it's like two D20s, I think. And one is uh, red and one is blue. And like, obviously, immediately, you know, my brain is like, oh, yeah, uh, cops. Right. Mm -hmm. And she was like, yeah, it's a little obvious, but I think it's appropriate. You know, these are for you. And she tosses them to me and and my logic comes up and it says she's going to toss them to you or maybe she's preparing to do it. And my logic is like, she's going to toss them to you. Do not overthink it. And I get a check that's like hand eye coordination. And it's like um you know what you know uh catch them and it's like a medium check or whatever but it says like negative one oh, definitely overthink it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so i like try to grab them and i only catch one or no actually i don't even think i catch them and uh, one just goes right down the hole damn uh yeah and so i only get one and she's like look they were a set so they don't really work sorry damn. you know like they would work conceptual if you had both but you don't have both so I did. I did the same thing. Uh, she get. She threw me the uh, cop dice, and uh, I did catch them. And Good. I got a cool little thing in my thought cabinet, either talking about the dice that I had, or like the games that they're played with, the role playing games. Um, and it's basically a, a thought uh, cabinet about like the possibility of failure. And it is a, it's wild. Why? And I've like immediately started internalizing it. And for the next four hours, I automatically fail every red check. Whoo. <laughs> it's high. I don't know. I hope that this is going to pan out. I, I just hope I can dodge like a important red check. Um, for the, for the um, remainder of the next four hours, I might read a book or something. Mm -hmm. Just, mm -hmm. just chill out just chill out because i wanted to do a little quest with kuno but i can't <laughs> because of yeah. this thought cabinet thing i really didn't think it out mm. Mm -hmm. and we don't know what the like solution is no i don't know i do i have not spoiled it so i do not know like how it resolves i'm, I'm gonna look right now i'm not mm -hmm. gonna tell you what it is do you, do you remember the name of it um, something possibility of possibility, maybe. Um, okay. 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 Accept all thoughts. One moment. I'm looking. Okay. The precarious world. Is what it was called. I looked at my footage here. <clears throat> um. Ooh. Okay. 
Okay, that sounded like a good one. Uh, it's it's interesting at least. Okay, what I'll say. All right, hopefully worth having to dodge a red check for the next uh, four hours game time. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I think that what you've said is kind of interesting about like how. But it, I, you can apply that uh, lesson, like the idea of like the way we are tackling the game really affecting the experience. I think you can, it can be applied with all these Baldur's Gate games, right? With all like isometric RPGs. It might affect this one maybe a little bit mm-hmm. because of like the varying emotional tenors of main quest versus side quest. But also, I mean, the main quest in like Baldur's Gate 1 was relatively serious and have a lot of levity and like the tonal difference in some of the side quests is like really silly right Mm -hmm. yeah so maybe maybe it's the same thing yeah yeah i mean yeah i mean i think that they are i guess the difference here right is that there there's a lot of thought that goes into the design of the 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 width of approach in this game mm-hmm. whereas there's very little thought that goes into the design of the width of approach in these other isometric rpgs yeah no meaning that meaning accurate. that like if you if if i uh if if the two of us uh, you know go into a dialogue you know conversation in this game what we get out of it's going to be radically different if I approach a combat encounter as a wizard and you approach it as a barbarian in Baldur's Gate, what we get out of it's not radically different. The process is different and the outcome is identical. Exactly. Right. Unless you're Ticklevar and then the outcome just takes you, you know, 20 to 30 times longer. That's true. But the process was the same. It just had to be repeated many times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, fun. So, like, what's the next thing you're thinking about doing we got the rest of this day to burn i don't know if you've done anything else after this um i was looking at our little list and i don't know i guess we just have to do some quests it's like some little side quests maybe because we we've got like half a day or so to burn right yeah i don't know we'll figure it out but it'll, mm-hmm. it'll be something for sure yeah we'll figure out something to do um we'll probably have to chat about it in the in kind of the interim but this will be just a maybe a little bit shorter of an episode because of the way there's just this bottleneck in the game that with day three like you're kind of just stuck in this half of the area and you can't advance the main plot until the the bridge is operable this actually happened to me. I think this is part of the structure of the game. Um, something that's been actually announced since the last time we recorded one of these episodes is that there's a new version of this game coming out. Oh, really? Uh, the final cut, yeah, uh, which is um, you know unfortunate for us, I guess. <laughs> um, and I, I think it will probably come out in the middle of this um, recording. The, the two, or in the middle of this being posted... The two things that are interesting about it, or the kind of big things, is one, it is um, uh, creating voice acting for every line of dialogue, I believe, in the game. Mm. I actually don't think that's a good idea. I I strongly disagree with that as a choice. I do not think that will improve the game. I, I think that would actually make me... Having to listen to all the lines of dialogue in this game, I think, would make me uh, like it less, just to be frank. Mm. Um, but, uh, the, the other side of it too, is that they're going to be more side quests. 
And I think that, or and maybe more to the main quest too, I'm actually not sure, but I think part of the reason for adding more side quests is that what has happened to us here is exactly what happened to me the first time I played the game, mm-hmm. which is about midday, day two, I had completed literally everything that could be completed in this first part of the game. Yeah. Um, and I just had to figure out literally ways to move the clock. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really took kind of running around. So in some ways, it, when you're at this point in the game, it really doesn't feel, at least when I played the game for the first time, it didn't feel like I was able to like role play appropriately or whatever, because I didn't think that my character would be going down like all of these routes and roads of quest lines, because that's not what they were interested in. And yet I had to do them to move the clock forward. Mm-hmm. So um, and there might be ways, I mean, can you just like go to sleep or something or read a book or are there ways to just well, move the clock? Well, if you are, if you don't have Kim with you, uh, you can sit on a park bench. Oh. There's a park bench outside the whirling in rags and you just sit on it. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I'll probably, maybe I'll see if I can get some, uh, some drugs off the more drugs. I did mm-hmm. get some speed from Klausia's, uh, medicine cabinet. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that last episode because I had the option to get it, and I said, "No, no, no, I do not want it." I took it, and then I like shook it in front of her and be like, "I see you've got this. I'm going to take some." And she's like, "You're stealing. That's bad." And and Kim actually had my back, and he's like, "Technically, it's just confiscating." <laughs> Kim's got a real laissez-faire attitude toward uh, confiscation and using it, based on those um, uh, you know tires or rims that you that you got from him. Yeah, I think Kim's really showing us like what the limits are to the idea of the good cop, right? Mm-hmm. Like where the moral <laughs> limits of of that of that concept like like are defined, right? Yep. Cuz you're still you're still just taking people's stuff uh willy-nilly left and right. Um yeah, well maybe we'll find some conversations we can get into. Maybe we'll both end up trying to do this uh Kuno quest after after my you know red checks go. You might end up having to talk, trying to talk with Renee. That might be fun. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mhm. Yeah, we we still got a couple people. We'll figure it out. Awesome. Well, any uh any any last messages you want to impart on the viewer listeners? Oh, you can go to rangetouch.com to see all the other things we do. And if you like the show and you want to support it, you can go to patreon.com slash rangetouch. The links to both of those things are down in the description below this episode. If you are watching this on YouTube and you'd rather hear it as a podcast, there's a link to that as well. Um, That's all I've got. Uh, We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Ciao, everybody. Oh!